Welcome to this very special RPG Bot Dot How to Play Pathfinder 2nd Edition. Today, Tyler and I will be working with Ash to talk through the concepts and themes of Pathfinder 2nd Edition. So Pathfinder 2nd Edition is a game I've played a little bit of, Tyler has played a little bit more of, maybe even a lot a bit more of, and Ash is fairly new to. Uh, and so we wanted to kind of use this as an opportunity to present for folks at home who maybe don't have a lot of tabletop experience. Maybe you do have a lot of tabletop experience, but just not in Pathfinder 2nd Edition. This episode is meant to be an introduction to the concepts and themes, the core ideas that are going to help you play Pathfinder 2nd Edition. Uh, so I'll kind of guide the conversation. I'm going to have to rely on Tyler for some things because he is our resident grognard. And uh, yeah, Ash, I hope you learned some stuff and I hope it's useful. I suppose I should say, although I've already implied it, with me is Tyler Kampstra. Hi, everybody. And Ash Eli. I'm looking forward to finding the path. Yeah, me too, buddy. Me too. Yeah. S- somehow we're going to wind up among the stars. <laughs> it's, it's a joke that I liked so much that I had to use it again. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh. Cool. So let's let's hop right into it. I'd like to first kind of walk broad and talk through the things that we're going to hit in the episode. We're going to talk about the composition of a character that you would roleplay in Pathfinder 2nd Edition. We're going to talk about the three pillars of dungeon fantasy roleplaying games, social interactions, exploration, and combat encounters. We're going to dive a bit deeper into combat encounters and talk about a lot of the nuances that make it different than other games and kind of what are, what are these mechanics. We'll talk a bit about spellcasting as well. Pathfinder 2nd Edition is a mouthful. You're probably going to hear us say PF2 most of this time. That's what most folks in the community know it as. Uh, So, PF2. Let's talk about the world of PF2. PF2 takes place in the world of Galarian. Galarian, I have heard best described as a kitchen sink of every trope that you might want to explore in a fantasy setting. You know, no matter what world you're trying to build, there is a setting in Galarian where you could put people. And then if at some point in your storytelling you wanted to move it somewhere else, you could certainly do that. But yeah, let's go and hop into building a character. Now, I should say, and now's a good time to say it, this will actually be a four-part series. Today, we're going to talk about the concepts and themes, kind of the core mechanics. The second part in the series, Tyler is going to work with Ash to build a character for Pathfinder 2nd Edition. In the third part, we're going to do a little bit of actual play with Ash and let Ash kind of get the first experience with PF2. And then finally, we'll come back for the fourth part and do a bit of a retro talk through like, hey, what are the open questions? What did you like? What did you did? What did you not like? Yeah. So it should be good. Yeah, should be fun. All right. So let's talk a little bit about like, how do we compose a character in PF2? It's pretty simple to start with. There are three ideas. We have the ancestry, the background, and the class. So ancestry would be like dwarf, elf, halfling, that kind of thing. Exactly. Yeah, absolutely. And Ancestry is really cool. One of the things built right in the core rulebook, there's this idea of an adopted ancestry. Tyler, isn't one of the iconics is actually an adopted ancestry character? Yeah, the iconic rogue is adopted and raised by halflings, uh, but she herself is an elf. So when you say iconic, what does that mean? Pathfinder has uh, iconic characters. They're just the characters that they use for all of the art representing a class. They're used in official art as a stand-in for your character, essentially. I so gotcha. when you see like, oh, that's the iconic rogue, that could be me. I gotcha. So elf raised by halflings, yes? Yeah. So how would that affect my character creation? 
So you start from the traits of your ancestry. So that's your um, ability scores, your starting hit points, your access to ancestry feats. And then the adopted ancestry feat lets you choose some feats from your adopted ancestry. So if you're adopted by halflings, you could take feats that are like culturally relevant to halflings. You still can't take things that require you to physically be a member of that ancestry, Mm. but it gets you access to cultural things, knowledge, lore, things like that. I see. Okay. Awesome. So the the second part of this is the background. The background, it, it is exactly what it sounds like. What were you doing before you became an adventurer? You, you probably didn't like leave primary school, if, if that's a such a thing as PF2, and say, I'm going to go be an adventurer now because you probably would die because you're T-tiny and your brain isn't fully developed. Right. Although I guess I've played with some characters, so that's not... Yeah. <laughs> anyway. So a, a couple example of backgrounds I'll toss out there. A farmhand, that could be your background. Uh, you could be a, glam- a gambler, a gladiator. A miner, one who digs in the ground, not the young person, because that would kind of negate everything I just said. Typically with a background, what are you going to get? You're going to get a little bit of background for RP. It's like, you know, my day on the farm. You're going to get two ability score boosts. Uh, and typically it's dictated like one of them has to be from this list. The other is free for you to choose. You'll typically get some lore, and we'll talk about that a little bit in skills. But essentially, it's like, you know a lot about a particular thing, and if that particular thing comes up, you're going to have a great time. Mm. And you'll typically get some skill boost from it. Okay. Yeah, and and so you'll get a little bit of RP to go with it. Thinking about how you want your character to work, you can look for something that kind of fits the skill boost that you would like to have. And then finally, that kind of brings us to the third part, which cl- which is your class. Uh, your class is, no kidding, like, what do you do? Are you a caster? Are you a fighter? Uh, if you're a caster, what kind of caster are you? And all these things together comprise the character. Okay, I think I understand. Yeah, yeah, I guess it makes perfect sense, right? Okay, it makes perfect sense for me. <laughs> so your character is going to have six ability scores, and this is pretty common. You know, this is what we're using in Five E. This is what a lot of systems use: our strength, dex, and con as all things that represent kind of your physical capability, your intelligence, wisdom, and charisma as your mental stats. And one of these is probably going to be important based on your class. Usually there's a ability score. Actually, Tyler, I'll look to you. Do we have any multiple ability score driven classes in PF2? There are no classes with multiple key ability scores. There are classes that depend on multiple ability scores for different things, but you, you'll always have one key quote unquote ability score. Okay. And and so you'll hear people talk about single ability score versus multiple ability score. So are you sad or are you mad? So it sounds like most classes in PF2 are sad. Yeah. I, I just wanted to squeeze that in because I think it's a lot of fun. <laughs> sad. So sad. Yeah. As you build your character, uh, you're going to build your character on top of feats. So what are feats? Feats are, they tend to be activities that you can do. Feats are abilities that your your character can do, and what's cool in Pathfinder 2 is a lot of feats have prerequisites, like a, you have to have this prior feat, you have to be this class, you have to have this ancestry, and so ultimately, you can infinitely customize your character based on choosing a particular feat tree or set of feats, and that's really going to make your character you know, let's say you're playing an elf wizard with the merchant background. You could have five different elf wizards with the merchant background at the table. And because of feats that everybody chooses, you might ultimately wind up with five very different characters. Okay, so 
it has a lot more variation than most other tabletop RPG games. Yeah, definitely. And I think for a lot of folks, that's what can wind up feeling very intimidating. The good news I'll say, if you want a little bit of guidance about how to build those characters, if you go to rpgbot.net, there's lots of content about, okay, what are my options for building a wizard, a cleric, a fighter in Pathfinder 2nd Edition? There's great guides, and you can kind of pick the flavor that you would prefer. And then within that flavor, find the feats and the skills that are ultimately going to help you perform. So there's a, a few cool key ideas when you look at a feat. The feat will have prereqs. What do you have to have done already for you to take this feat? The feat will define a level. What level does your character have to be in order to use this feat? And leveling works as, you know, levels one to 20. You could do experience or milestone. We'll get in, you know, let's call that part of the advanced topic. But essentially, your character's going to have a level and that level dictates whether a particular feat is available to you. Something new that I love in Pathfinder 2 compared to other games that I've looked at, the idea of traits where uh, many feats might have the same trait, and ultimately that trait indicates something about how that feat is used. So we'll dive a little bit deeper into traits in a little bit when we have more context under our belt, but ultimately the traits attached to feats give a little bit of flavor and kind of help you figure out the right way uh, and sometimes dictate the only way that you can use particular feats. Okay, so so yeah, we'll talk about traits later. Yeah. Okay, fair enough. You might have requirements against a feat. So a particular feat might say, look, you have to have this ancestry. You have to have this class. There can be general feats that kind of anybody can take, or you might have feats based on a particular skill. Skills are, you know, probably what you're used to if you've played a lot of uh, D&D or if you played prior editions of Pathfinder. I'm going to run through and I'll name a handful of of skills. Sure. Uh, You know, acrobatics. Uh, you know, how well can you, you know, dance and jive and do backflips and these sorts of things. If you were climbing a rope and the rope started to break, would you be able to climb? Intimidation, you know, can you intimidate folks around you? You might have, you know, arcana, like if something is magical, if you find a rune or something like this and that rune is magical, how likely are you to kind of understand and be able to figure out what's happening with this? Uh, you know, survival, the- uh, thievery, uh, society. So if something is has to do with kind of the politics of a society or performance you know around a particular group of people how likely are you to be able to figure that out and work through it one of the cool things that i love with pathfinder is there's this idea of uh, lore and so we hinted at this earlier most of your backgrounds are going to give you lore like let's say it's uh, sailing you know i played a character one point and my lore was actually alcohol so if the conversation of alcohol came up i would be able to you know i know everything you know i'm much more likely to know it than anybody else around me so hey who wants to talk whiskey? So lore has specific subcategories? Exactly. E- exactly. Okay. And there's a, a wide variety of them. If you're playing a particular adventure path, so you know, I started recently GMing the uh, Kingmaker adventure path. There's a lot of like body politic and a lot of different groups of folks that are involved. And so some of the suggested lore skills you might take are about those different groups of people. And so let's say you meet somebody from a particular region for the first time. If that's your lore skill, you might actually have an inherent advantage in working with them because you have lore to help you. So what distinguishes when you would use lore over when you would use uh, society? Because it feels like if you're talking about people from different nations, that could that could fall under lore of that nation or maybe society because it's politics, right? 
Yeah, I'll, I'll be real blunt. So every skill that you have has essentially a modifier attached to it. Hopefully it's positive. Sometimes it could be negative. Reasonably, you're going to use the higher skill. Fair so enough. if your society was actually higher than your lore bonus on something, you're going to use society. Ideally, though, your lore bonus would be higher. So it's going to be that inherent advantage. Uh, lore can also cover like much more specific topics. So like society could cover like dwarf cultures, human cultures, lore could be like this one specific nation or yeah, alcohol lore, tea lore, sailing lore for like sailing ships. So lore is for like very, very specific, but niche skills that, uh, you know, they're, they're not quite as widely covered in the game, but they apply in specific cases. So sometimes it's helpful to have them. Yeah. And so I would say if you're a new player at a table working with a new GM, um, lore is actually one of the fun things to present to your GM. That way, you know, if they know the the lore specification of everybody in front of you, they might actually find opportunities to make that available to you. And they might also remember when you when you are in a situation where your lore skill matters, mm. they'll ideally remember it's like, oh, but these folks are from the place where you know a lot about. So let's go ahead and use that skill and give the party an advantage in that. So yeah, lore's, lore's pretty cool. Yeah, no, it sounds cool. <laughs> yeah. So I want to talk a little bit about proficiency in these skills. Uh, so this is going to be, I think, new compared to a lot of games that folks have played. For each skill, you have a proficiency. Um, so I will make a comparison to 5e. You know, folks who are coming from that game are used to, I have a proficiency bonus. It applies to everything I'm proficient in, and that's the end of it. In our skills, for each individual skill, you can be untrained, trained, expert, master, or legendary. So I I just said five levels. Each of those five levels get a plus zero for untrained, plus two, plus four, plus six, plus eight for the specific skill based on your level of training in that skill. And how do you increase your proficiency in those skills? As you gain levels, your class will give you what are called skill increases. Most classes get them every two levels. And then you can use that to increase your proficiency in a skill. And like there's a level requirement for each like level of proficiency. So you can't be expert until level three. You can't be master until I want to say level nine. I'm forgetting off the top of my head. But basically like, you'll inc- increase several skills and then you'll get to go up another tier and go back to your favorite skill and do it again. And then over time, your skills will gradually move up toward legendary. So is it better to try to spread out your proficiency tiers across multiple skills or focus on just a few? It depends. Um, So if you're at least trained, you also get to add your level to your proficiency bonus. So that's... um, And like the proficiency works the same way for uh, your defenses. So it's like your AC and stuff and attacks and skills. So like it's a very core to the system, but... If you want to cover a lot of skills and like very broad capabilities, then yeah, you can spread them out. But if you want to be really good at a couple of things, increasing the skills you like best makes sense because it does also unlock additional actions in some cases. So let me see if I understand this correctly. So if you're trained in a skill, when you roll that skill, you don't add plus two, you add plus two plus your level. So like if I was level three, I would add plus five. Correct. Plus, like ability modifiers, potentially items, other stuff like that. Yeah. Okay. So that that way it kind of scales as you level. So like, if you don't, if you just leave a skill trained, you won't outgrow it. Essentially. 
Yeah, that's that's nice. And in fact, at higher levels, you know, your level bonus to something that you're trained in is going to be making a much more significant contribution than leveling it from, let's say, trained to expert. Okay. Okay. Yeah, and so that that's a Tyler just said a key thing, and so I want to I want to emphasize it. And this is one of the places where we'll dive a little bit in the weeds. So your total bonus when you're looking at a skill is going to be if you if you were trained your current level plus the associated ability modifier plus your proficiency bonus plus anything that you get from any other items um you know uh, spells that are on you anything like this and then finally minus any penalties that could be there but kind of those those three core things right if you're trained in it your level the proficiency bonus and then your ability modifier so in all your modifiers can actually get quite high yeah i can kind of see that (laughs) (laughs) cool so there's one last thing that i want to talk about and it's more tied to the idea of a skill check so how are we using these skills Uh, i walk into a bar i am legendary in alcohol lore don't ask me how and i walk up and i say i would like to take a shot out of that very fancy bottle at the top and they say to me you can if you can tell me what's in the bottle we've set up a skill check so i roll my d20 i add my legendary bonus i add my level i you know I, i get everything together And the result could be one of four things. I can succeed. I can fail. I can critically succeed. I can critically fail. Okay, so how do I do all four of those? Okay, so every skill check is going to have a DC. Uh, Let's say this alcohol lore check has a DC of 30. If I roll a 30, I beat it. All right, I have succeeded. If I beat that 30 by 10, so I get to 40, I roll a 40 with all my bonuses and everything else put together. I have critically succeeded. And that means I succeeded really hard. Uh, A lot of times, if you're playing a published adventure, critical success will give you some additional bonus. Like, not only do they sell you the shot, they give you the shot for free, even though it was very expensive. Or they give you the whole bottle. That might be what happens on a critical success. Let's say I got a 29. I have failed. Yeah, uh, sorry. I just have a question. So. That is um that is an intriguing way of doing it. I am going to like briefly just as a comparison. So does do natural twenties because I know like in fifth edition natural twenties are considered a crit success. Do natural twenties factor into this at all? Ones and twenties both do. So that's a great question. If you resolve it, however you would resolve it, and and just to put a bow on that, if I if I rolled ten below, so let's say I got a twenty and I needed a thirty, I've actually critically failed. Okay, now we have this gambit: critical failure all the way to critical success. Whatever the result would naturally be based on the numbers. If I roll a twenty, I increase the success level by one up to critical success. There's no critical critical success. Oh, okay. If I roll a one, I bump it down. So it's possible that my number was high enough to be a success because I was just so good at this thing. But I rolled a one, so my success actually becomes a failure. Okay, I actually that's really cool. I like that. Yeah. And, and so even though you're really, really good at something, there's still a penalty for that 5% chance that you roll a one. Right. Uh, and then finally, if you, if you do just a regular old fail and you roll a one, it does become a critical failure. And so as a, you know, in other games where you might have kind of the binary, either I succeed or I fail and we go on as a GM and PF two, when you're making a check like this, you might want to have an idea in your head of like, what would it look like to critically fail? What would it look like to critically succeed and make that rewarding 
Um, because ultimately, you know, your character is invested in what they invested in within their skills. Make it fun when things go really well or really poorly. Cool. So we'll talk a little bit more about character creation when you do your session with Tyler and actually build a character. Let's go ahead and step into the three pillars of dungeon fantasy role-playing games. Okay. So we talk about social interactions, and a lot of your social interactions are going to be dictated by the skills that we were just talking through. Um, so you have skills like diplomacy, society, performance. Um, if you're talking to a priest, you might be using a religion skill to try to like, you know, jive with them and make, make them feel like you feel like whatever they feel like. That way you can ultimately work through the interaction and get where you want to be. Exploration is a whole other piece of this, right? You know, part of the dungeon crawling, it isn't just, you know, walking from skeleton to skeleton to stab. Occasionally, you also might want to do things like look for traps. You might want to sneak up on a skeleton. All of these things also are going to rely pretty heavily on your skills. What kind of skills? Yeah, that's a good question. So we do have a stealth skill. And so you might say, I want to roll stealth in order to sneak up on my, my skeletons. We have athletics and acrobatics, so let's say I need to climb a rope ladder, I need to cross a rickety bridge, or, you know, we're, we're hungry. Let's say we're playing a game where we're really emphasizing, are we tracking rations, this sort of thing. I might need to find food, and so I might need to use my survival skill uh, in order to find food. Or, I have two paths in front of me. In one path is a green snake, in the other path is a red snake. Which one is more likely to be venomous? Let's roll survival and see who lives. Makes sense. Yeah, so the, the failure, it's like, I'm actually not sure which one is which. Critical failure on that could be, I'm going to lie to you as the GM, and I'm going to tell you the wrong snake. Love it. <laughs> yeah. In fact, something like that actually happened in the Kingmaker campaign, where they were supposed to be kind of looking at somebody and getting a feeling for what the right way to approach them, and they critically failed. Uh, so what I did is I lied to them and said, they would be really impressed if you did feats of strength. And so they do that. And then the person is like, I, you're boorish and I don't want to talk to you. And it's like, how did that happen? Well, you did really bad on the roll. And of course that could lead to metagaming, but it's fine. We're all going to have some fun with it. So in terms of like preventing people from knowing whether you lied to them, I read somewhere that Pathfinder has secret roles. Is that something that is commonly used or is that something that is avoided? Yes. Uh, secret roles are definitely a thing. Frequently, they're used to sense motives for somebody. Um, sometimes there are effects which will trigger a secret role, like some features give you a secret role to detect traps if you approach them, and the, the GM is expected to roll them. And then like, if you notice something, the GM will tell you. If you don't, they don't say anything. So they just passively happen, and the GM manages those. Basically, the intent is... The game doesn't want players to accidentally metagame by knowing something that they, by knowing something that their character couldn't possibly know. For instance, that this uh, short gnome with a uh, wizard staff wasn't going to be impressed by your flexing. Yeah, I would imagine like if you rolled really low, if a player could see that they rolled really low on an insight check, and you, as a DM, say. Oh, this guy is the is is just a upstanding citizen, really good guy, no ulterior motive. Then they'll know that you lied to them, exactly, <laughs> because they're like, yeah, so no, exactly. And so that is that's the a great opportunity for a GM to make the decision to make that hidden role, that secret role. So it's on a case by case basis, essentially. Yeah, and and I think exactly right. Right, I, I would almost say using the tool when you find that your players are metagaming. You know, it's fun to let them have success with their own die. 
But if you recognize there's a lot of metagaming, this is a place where as a GM, you might say, okay, I'm going to start making these rules in secret because you folks can't behave. (laughs) Um, Also, in in all sincerity, on, on the flip side, that hidden knowledge can actually be a lot of fun because if if the players really understand, depending on how this secret role goes, I'm going to tell you the truth or a lie, and then they have to act on that knowledge. I think that can be a lot of fun in the RP. Cool. So let's let's actually step in and talk a little bit about combat mechanics. Uh, a large part of the game is going to be this, and I would say a lot of the complexity of the game is tied to uh, combat mechanics. So initiative is the idea of what order are we going to go in in this combat? So I have several player characters. Um, typically, I might have four, four to five, uh, four to five, not 45. That would be insane. Uh, and then there's also the monsters that we're going to fight or the creatures that we're going to be fighting. And so let's say there's four or five of them as well. Every participant in the combat will make an initiative role. In Pathfinder 2, we're going to use a special skill, the perception skill. So initiative works on top of perception, which is held out and not in your list of skills. It is something that stands out on its own. Every player character will at least be trained in perception, and some, even at level one, will have a higher level of training. Um, I'm looking at the iconic swashbuckler right now. At level one, they're starting as an expert in perception, for instance. Are there ways to increase your perception? Like, Can you do it like you would do a normal skill, or is it different? So perception will improve automatically as you gain levels. Each class progresses uh, at a slightly different rate. So you basically just don't have to think about it. Okay. Uh, you do get to add your wisdom modifier to perception. So, you know, more wisdom, more perception, that'll be good. But generally, it just chugs along in the background. You don't have to worry about it too much. Okay. Now, you don't have to use your perception modifier as your modifier to your initiative role. I brought up this example earlier of, you know, I'm a sneaky guy and I'm going to sneak up on these skeletons. If you were, if you had taken the, is it the sneak action using your stealth? I believe it's called avoid notice when you're out of combat. Cool. And then when you're actually playing the game, we're probably just going to call it sneak. Probably. <laughs> yeah. Okay. <laughs> so th- there is a specific action. And I guess that's a, actually a very common thing in Pathfinder 2. Whatever it is you want to do, uh, where in other games you kind of had to ad-lib exactly what the structure of it is, I'm almost willing to guarantee you somewhere in the core rulebook this is specified. Okay, so I would take the avoid notice action, which is going to use my stealth modifier. If I succeed and I enter combat while avoiding notice, I might use my stealth as my modifier and initiative rather than my perception. And so I say that to say it isn't always going to be your perception. Sometimes there's an advantage uh ropes for instance uh, do they always have the feet or is it just why wouldn't you take the feet that gives you oh avoid notice no 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 um if you if you use stealth as your modifier on initiative i i think you get like an extra 1d6 on your first attack uh sneak attack yeah sneak attack is just built into the rogue yeah And, and so that's a good example of where like you really might like sneaking into combat because it's going to give you an innate advantage in the combat Cool. Uh, So one of my favorite things about Pathfinder 2 is the action economy of Pathfinder 2. Uh, The the action economy is booming. (laughs) Okay, so I'll make a comparison to 5e uh, for folks coming from that game. You have an action, a bonus action, and a movement, and those things can never be interchanged unless you have a specific thing that lets you do that, but most often not. In Pathfinder 2, you have three actions. You have three actions. You have three actions. 
Combat is divided by round, so everybody gets a turn in a round, and then we start over in the initiative order once again. So in a round, you're going to get a, a turn. In your turn, you can use three actions, and across the entire round, you can use one reaction. So what can I use my actions on? Everything. <laughs> no, so so this, this is it, right? So if I'm a fighter, I might choose to attack three times. And let's go and actually dive into that. So let's take the fighter case. I go in and I say I'm going to attack. And so I, I attack. For my second action, I might attack again. But because I'm attacking a second time in Pathfinder 2, I get what is called the multiple attack penalty. Okay, and what is that? So by default, it's minus five to your attack roll. That's brutal. It isn't. And so let's, let's actually look at this. So I'm looking at um, a first level adventure in Pathfinder, and I'm looking at a swashbuckler character. The attack modifier for a rapier attack is plus seven. Oh. So the expectation value for them to, to hit is, a, is 17. Okay. I'm looking at two monsters that are, are monsters in this first level setup. Their ACs are 14 and 15. So the expectation value is I'm, I'm not only am I likely to hit, I'm very likely to hit on that first attack. Right. For that second attack, if I'm minus five, I'm at 12, AC of 14 and 50, I'm slightly likely not to hit, but there's still a pretty reasonably likely, uh, likelihood that I'm going to hit. It's less than 50%, but it's still greater than a quarter of the time I'm actually going to make that hit. And so I assume there's a third penalty if you attack three times. Exactly. On your third attack, you're going to take minus 10. And <laughs> at that point, it is probably not going to go well. I, mean, I think you, know, you have to recognize that. Now, a lot of uh, fighters have uh, a trait. And so we said we'd come back and visit traits. This is going to be one of the places that manifest. I might be fighting with a weapon that has a trait, which is agile. Now, instead of the, for the multi-attack penalty, instead of taking minus 5 and minus 10, I take minus 4 minus 8. Hmm. Okay. Another piece of this, in combat, I might have a creature which is flat-footed for some reason. Well, let's not step into how do I make a creature flat-footed, but that flat-footed gives them a minus 2 penalty to their AC. So how do you get flat-footed? Uh, so a couple different ways. One way might be that I have a, an ally uh, on the grid on the opposite side. Of this creature. So like flanking? Exactly. Uh, and that ally could be another one of the player characters. It could be a player character's familiar. Hmm. I think it could be an NPC that's friendly to me, right? As long as that other character is there, they're flat-footed and I get that penalty. So let's go back to that math we were talking about a second ago. When I have the first level multi-attack, multiple attack penalty of minus five, minus four, when I have an expectation value of 17 minus four, because it's actually agile, I have 13. When I do minus two against my monsters, they're actually at 13 and 12. So the expectation is I will still hit if, if I have them flat-footed mm. on the first attack and the second attack. But that third attack is probably not going to go well. I guess, Tyler, what are some other ways that we can make someone flat-footed? Um, there are options like fainting. You could uh, hit them with some kind of status condition. Like they could be grappled or prone or blinded, any of those things. Okay, yeah, that makes good sense. So. Is movement, does movement take one of these actions as well? Exactly. So not just movement, a very specific type of movement. Uh, so the stride, 
Um, the movement speed that you have on your character sheet, again, I'm looking at my swashbuckler. My swashbuckler has a movement of almost surely 25, but I can't find it in the character sheet right now. <laughs> Here we are. Okay. has <laughs> a movement speed of 25. So I can stride 25 feet. I could use all three actions to move 75 feet in a turn. Okay. There's there's some key things that I want to point out here, though. Let's say there's a monster 15 foot away from me, but I don't want to end combat next to that monster. If I move 15 feet, that is an action, and I have lost the remaining 10 feet of movement. I attack. That's my first attack, so I take no multiple attack penalty. And then I run away, and I stride back to where I started. I use 15 feet of movement, and I lose the other 10 feet of movement. When you're using multiple movements in a turn, you cannot bank the movement in between actions. Once you move and then take a second action or a third action, you're you're done with the movement that you had in that stride. So you can't move, attack, move unless you're using multiple actions. That's right. Uh, okay. When you ex- exactly now we do have. So you you potentially have more maneuverability than you would in say like something like fifth edition, where you can only move thirty feet around unless you're taking an action to dash but with this like you could move like triple your movement but it comes at the cost of you can only move so far before you take an action and before you have to use another action no exactly got it so there's another there's another type of movement called step uh step is i'm going to move five feet but i will trigger no reactions i'm familiar so there's this idea Okay, good. And, and so there's this idea of an attack of opportunity. Not every creature has the ability to take an attack of opportunity as a reaction. So you shouldn't be afraid to run away from creatures. But if you know a creature has an attack of opportunity, you might choose to use one of your actions to just step away five feet. Not every character gets access to attacks of opportunity? That's right. Interesting. Neither creatures nor characters are guaranteed to have it. Very interesting. Yeah. And, and so, you know, again, we'll, we'll make that comparison to 5e in a place where like nobody wants to move away because nobody wants to invoke that opportunity attack in 5e. In Pathfinder 2, it's often quite smart to run away. And then if you discover that, oh, they do have it, one person learns the lesson the hard way and everybody else just steps. <laughs> <laughs> that is that is fair. So does uh, doing a, a five foot step consume an action? It does. So why would you choose to do it instead of just moving away? If you were very worried about the attack of opportunity, you would step and then you might stride away further. So it's similar to what, sorry to make another comparison, so it's similar to disengage from 5th edition? That's right. Got it. Okay. Yeah. Perfect. And and so I, I feel like we've covered movement pretty well. You can move up to your movement speed in a stride. But if you take a second action, you don't get to bank it. Let's say you attack, you cast a spell, something like this. But in a turn, if you used all three actions to stride, you could move up to your total movement. So this example character I'm looking at, I could actually move 75 feet. Okay. Another thing that, that's worth bringing up, I'll go and I'll toss it in here. Uh, the idea of saving throws. So there are three types of saving throws in Pathfinder 2nd Edition. Fortitude, Reflex, and Will. So what are the differences? Oh, perfect. And it's worth saying, anytime you're asked to make a saving throw, it's going to be one of these three saving throws. A fortitude saving throw is about your physical hardiness. How likely are you to physically withstand the thing that is happening? A reflex saving throw is is more like 
you know, how dexterous are you? How good are your reflexes? Can you jump out of the way of this fireball? Can you jump out of the way of this axe that has been hurled away, uh, hurled towards you? Away from you wouldn't be a problem. A will saving throw is mentally, can you withstand the thing that is happening to you? So just for another comparison of 5th edition, so for people who are familiar with 5th edition, fortitude would be like strength and con saves in one save. Uh, and then like reflex would be dexterity saving throw because, you know, dexterity saving throw is just amazing. Um, and then will save would just be intelligence, charisma, and wisdom saving throws all combined into one. No, that's perfect. Exactly. Okay. I think I understand. Cool, cool. And so then the, the final thing that you might be using your actions for we haven't talked about is spell casting. Yes. So can I cast three spells in a round? Almost, yes. but almost surely not. Okay. You, I mean, you can. And so this is worth talking about. So you have three actions. A lot of actions use uh, multiple actions. And so typically we call these actions activities. There are activities that use only one action. Many activities use more than one. A good example would be if I'm using a crossbow. It's one action to fire the crossbow and then two actions to load, to, to reload my crossbow. Oh, that's brutal. <laughs> and so, it, yeah. So that's what do you brutal. do? You walk into combat with your crossbow loaded. You fire the crossbow. You use a free action to drop the crossbow. You use an action to pull out a weapon. And then maybe you use your final action to hide behind something, something like this. <laughs> Uh, and in the case of spellcasting, there are one action spells. Most spells use two actions. And so as a caster, what are you likely to get? You're likely to maybe use something like a meta magic or, or some other feat to get some advantage and then use a two action activity casting a spell. Okay. Some, uh, and, and, and Tyler helped me out with it. There are some spells, for instance, like I think some of the healing spells, if you use one action, it's a touch spell to heal. If you use two actions... It's a range, and if it uses three actions, it's even cooler. Yeah, some spells can use different numbers of actions. Heal is a great example. Um, Harm is a good example. Magic Missile is a good example. Um, And each spell will specify exactly what happens when you use different amounts of actions. Uh, So you just have to check the specifics on that spell. Oh, that's really cool. I like that. Yeah. And so for a typical turn for a caster, it might be I'm going to use two actions to cast a spell. And then I'm going to use a third action to move or maneuver myself to be in a safe space. Or I might be using two actions to cast a spell and then a third action to stab somebody with my dagger. If you're a wizard, you probably shouldn't be doing that. <laughs> yeah, th- yeah. Things have gotten real bad. Yeah. Um, but, and and I, I have joke, but it was a pretty common thing that I would do, which is I would, you know, first round of combat, it's crossbow, drop crossbow, magic at you. Although now I'm wondering, should I have been able to do that unless if I wasn't holding... Uh, focus? Yes, you can do that. So in PF2, you don't actually need a focus to cast spells most of the time. Awesome. Okay, perfect. See, I wasn't cheating. Everything was great. <laughs> so just for my own edification, you say that it requires two actions to reload a crossbow. Does that also apply to guns? And if so, how does that affect the gunslinger? Guns. <laughs> uh, Yes, it applies to firearms. Um, gunslingers get special mechanics around how reloading works to make them more fun to play. Gotcha. Okay, because I was like, that sounds like a nightmare if you're a gunslinger. You're just gonna, you're just gonna <laughs> no, have to carry a cool bunch tricks. of guns, just like fire, fire, drop, 
more guns, fire, fire, drop. <laughs> <laughs> well, and then I, I don't know off the top of my head, Tyler, I'm wondering if you do. Is it two actions to reload the weapon or is it typically only one? It depends on the firearm. Okay, cool. Gotcha. Yeah, that makes perfect like, sense like to me. A, like a rifle would be two actions and a revolver would be like one or something. Something like that. Yeah. And there are some that take like like three or more because they're really, really large or have some elaborate loading mechanism or something like, like that. Like a mortar or something. Yeah. Th- those are the ones we drop, definitely. Yeah. <laughs> it's a one and done yeah, sort so, of thing. <laughs> yeah. So always check the description of the item for uh, specific rules. Got it. Yeah. So th- there's one last thing I kind of want to dive deep on, and that is spell casting in PF2. It can be a little complex, but I want to try to just make it simple. We have two types of casters we have prepared casters, we have spontaneous casters. So what is the difference? A prepared caster has to prepare their spells every day now you might have feats that let you maybe swap a spell in the middle of the day this sort of thing if you have those you know follow the rules generally you prepare your spells at the beginning of each day i'll compare to spontaneous spontaneous you learn them you always know them and you can cast any spell that you know if you're a prepared caster you will likely have a much larger larger spell list to choose from meaning that there's more flexibility, but you do have to make that sacrifice of choosing which spells you're going to cast each day. So correct me if I'm wrong, but I, I think what, uh, the thing about prepared casters, which is different from like, if you're coming from fifth edition where someone is just preparing their spells from a spell list that they have every day, and you can use your spell slots for any of those prepared spells, the spells you prepare have to be specific instances like specific casts so like if you want to cast two fireballs in a day you have to prepare two fireballs it's it's not just that you have to prepare two fireballs and you have to prepare them at the spell slot level that you want to cast them at right Uh, so there's this idea of heightened spells fireballs a great example where you know for every heightened plus one i think you get two d6 extra so as a prepared caster you might say i know fireball So I'm going to prepare Fireball at 3rd level, at 4th level, and at 5th level. Come at me. Just always Fireball. Yeah, all all the Fireballs, (laughs) all the time. So if you want to cast it multiple times a day, you have to prepare it multiple times, and you have to pick the level that you plan on casting it at. I'll compare it to a spontaneous caster. For a spontaneous caster, uh, there's an exception. We'll talk about it in a second. Generally, you have to know each spell at each level that you would like to cast it. So I already talked about you have a smaller list of spells available to you. As a spontaneous caster, if you were that, well, I saw the wizard the other day cast a third, a fourth, and a fifth in the same day for Fireball, and I love that. I want to be able to do that. What that means you have to do is you have to use your known spells to know Fireball at third level, at fourth level, and at fifth level. There's also signature spells, though, right? Exactly, and that is the relief to this. Most of your spontaneous casters have an idea of signature spells, and the idea of a signature spell is exactly that. For the things I deem my signature spells, as a spontaneous caster, I'm allowed to cast them at any spell level that I would like. So when you're choosing your signature spells, you make, you know, what are my, uh, my key spells that I plan on using day in, day out to deal damage, and that I want to level with me as I gain additional slots? You make those your signature spells. And then for these things where it's like, I don't know how often I'm really going to use this. I don't know if it's going to provide a lot of benefit to the team uh, at heightened levels. You might choose to say, okay, I'm only going to maybe learn this twice and I'll wait a few levels and kind of get a big gap to where I get the big one and the little one. Invisibility is a great example of that in PF2 where 
when it's first available to you, it behaves as like, I'm invisible. And if I take any action, I lose that invisibility. I can learn it at a higher level as a spontaneous caster. And then if I use it at that higher level, I get, you know, I get to stay invisible when I use an action and I'm invisible for a period of time, unless certain conditions were to break that. So one of the advantages of spontaneous casters is that even though you have uh, less spells that you know, you can not necessarily heighten those spells with whatever spell slots, but you can just prepare it once and just cast it multiple times with the same slot. Is that right? That That is right. And I the way that I would phrase that is you have a pool of spell slots. Right. And, and so let's say I know Fireball and I know Heal. A prepared caster would have to make the decision, do I think I'm going to cast Fireball more today or do I think I'm going to cast Heal more today? Uh, and then if if they're wrong on their needs, they have to hopefully live through it for the day. Right. On the spontaneous side, it, it is exactly what you say. I know both these spells, they're, they're available to me. If I have four level one spell slots available to me, I get to choose from any of the spells that I know that I can cast at first level, how I burn those four first level spell slots. I know in first edition Pathfinder and 3.5, it was possible to gain bonus spell slots. Is that still possible on Pathfinder 2? No. Okay. Now, there is another idea. Um, and if we want to talk a little more about prepared and spontaneous, we can come back. But I, I want to go to kind of this third type of spell that we should talk about. Focus spells. Okay. What are those? So you have your spell slots, and let's just push those off to the side. And, and for the moment, I don't care whether you're a prepared caster or a spontaneous caster. Independent of my spell slots, I have focus points. I might learn a focus spell because of my class or because of my ancestry. Um, something ultimately is going to provide that focus spell to me, and I'm going to have focus points that I can burn to cast my focus spell. I cannot cast my focus spells in my spell slots, and I cannot use my focus points to cast my prepared spells or known spells from my spontaneous casting. So they're not interchangeable. It's like having just a second set of magic available. Uh, to the point where the modifier for your focus spells will be related to the reason that you have focus points to begin with. So your your modifier or your spell save on your focus spells might actually be different than your regular casting. So these are so focus spells are like bonus spells, sort of like again, sorry to make a comparison to fifth edition, but like the racial spells that some people get that they can just cast once per day or something like that. Is that kind of what it's like? Yes and no. So focus spells cover like any sort of magic that doesn't cleanly fit into spell slots. So focus spells are things like the champions lay on hands. Monks get a bunch of focus spells to represent like key. Okay. Bards get focus spells for um, for songs, essentially. They do a bunch of different things, and they all work differently depending on the source of your focus spells, but it's the same pool across every character. So how, how big is your pool of focus points? Generally, every time you get a focus spell, you'll get one point. Okay. And it can be as large as three points. That's as large as it can ever go. That is, yeah, it is uh, hard written into the rules. You can never have more than three focus points. Uh, but the cool thing about focus points is you can spend 10 minutes refocusing and you get them back. Oh, well, that's really cool. Yeah. It, this is the refocus action. And the refocus action has the trait exploration. 
meaning that you can't do this somehow in an encounter. Granted, how would you, right? You have to be in <laughs> in the exploration mode of the game in order to take those 10 minutes and, and do that activity, which is refocusing. Uh, the cool thing is, though, it, it explicitly says, like, you can... Uh, let's say your focus point is tied to uh, being a cleric. You know, it, it's the nature of this. You could you you could refocus. You could use those ten minutes while you're tending to somebody's wounds because that's in the nature of being a cleric, and that might help you refocus. If you were an arcane caster uh, and your focus point came to, from something arcane, maybe you spend time just looking at your book because it makes you feel good, uh, and so you spend those ten minutes and you get that point back. Tyler, I'm not sure. Can you back to back? Like, let's say you did have three focus points. Can I back to back to back spend 30 minutes regaining my focus points? Or is there a limit to like refocus once per day? So the wording of the the wording of the refocus action by default only lets you recover one focus point and only if your focus pool is empty. So like if your pool is three, you've spent all three, you can recover one and then you're no longer allowed to recover until you spend that focus point but as you'll gain levels you'll gain access to feats which let you refocus to get more of them back gotcha so you have to deplete it before you can recover it okay that's an interesting balance and then finally it is worth saying that we do have cantrips as well are they still garbage like they were in pathfinder one no they're they're uh bottomless they scale as you gain levels so a lot of cantrips will increase damage every time you gain two levels. So like um, produce flame is the just I throw fire at somebody spell and it's like 1d8 per two levels basically. Okay. Yeah, no, that's pretty good. Yeah. And so that's, you know, for a prepared caster or a spontaneous caster, having those cantrips available really is kind of a key backstop to not being useless in combat and getting all your friends killed. Yeah, that would be nice if I could still do stuff <laughs> as a wizard when I ran out of spells. <laughs> Uh, and then we hinted at it a second ago. I think it's worth calling out. There are three modes of play. So we talked about the idea of you have to be in exploration mode and you might find certain actions you can only take. Uh, the trait is exploration. In other words, only when you're in exploration mode. Of course, we have encounter mode that we're doing the stab in. Uh, and then finally, downtime mode is a specific mode outside of encounter or exploration. Uh, so we do have an episode on downtime and we can put a link to it for folks if you want to go talk about what kinds of things could I do during downtime. But I guess specifically, Tyler, are, are you familiar off the top of your head with any actions that are specifically limited to downtime? Yeah, stuff like earning an income or researching spells. Basically anything that's going to take an amount of time that you'll probably measure in days rather than minutes. Makes that makes sense. good sense. Yeah, makes a lot of sense. Cool. All right. So I guess so here wraps the first part of the RPG bot dot how to play Pathfinder second edition. That's uh, a mouthful. It sure is. <laughs> yeah, we're probably gonna have to shorten that for the card title, aren't we? Most definitely. <laughs> so so what did we talk about? We talked about the components of a character. We talked about the three pillars of dungeon fantasy role playing games, interactions, exploration, and combat encounters. We dove deep on combat encounters talked a little bit about the action economy, and talked about spellcasting in Pathfinder 2nd Edition. You'll listen next to the second part of this series, where Tyler is going to work with Ash to build a Pathfinder 2nd Edition character. (laughs) Sorry. If you've enjoyed the show, please rate and review us on Apple Podcast, and rate us on Spotify or your favorite podcast app. It's a quick, free way to support the podcast and helps us to reach new listeners. You'll find links in the show notes. You'll find affiliate links for source books and other materials linked in the show notes, as well as on rpgbot.net. 
Following these links helps us to make this show happen every week. If your question should be the question of the week next week, please email podcast at rpgbot.net or message us on Twitter at rpgbotdotnet. Please also consider supporting us on Patreon, where you'll find ad-free podcast episodes, early access to rpgbot.content, polls for future content, and access to the rpgbot.discord. You'll find us at patreon.com slash rpgbot. We're good to go, Dan, if you want to kill it. We refuse to be funny.